A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think we do have all the ingredients for a perfect storm. We didn't do Brexit, in my view, to be a highly taxed, highly regulated European social democracy. We did it to become a lowly taxed, smartly regulated Singapore off the coast of Europe. They are taking you on and you are fighting back with interest. You're basically saying to the GP's trade union, aren't you? Come on then if you think you're hard enough. Boris has told the French to prenez une grip today. I think it may be our own Prime Minister who needs to prenez une grip. One. We have liftoff. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Hey, guess what? Waitrose is out of pita bread. <laughs> that was the shock call co-pilot Pearson took this week from one of her most senior deep throat sources, undercover in the heart of Middle England. Yes, that's how bad it's got, dear listeners. Britain's lack of HGV drivers, the supply chain shortages, the general fragility of our post-COVID economy means there's no other way to put this. For one moment, on one Saturday afternoon, in one she-she market town in the southeast, Waitrose was out of pita bread. No. The horror. This could be the equivalent of that gun going off in Sarajevo in the autumn of 1914. The flapping of butterfly wings, the hair trigger event that unleashes a wave of discontent across the home counties and beyond. Combine that aberration with a looming energy crisis, stroppy trade unions, rising inflation, bad-tempered wage bargaining, and it really does seem, as Planet Normal has been saying for quite a few weeks now, we're heading for a winter of discontent. Co-pilot Pearson stockpiling candles. <laughs> She's practising brushing her teeth in the dark. Now is the winter of our discontent, declared Gloucester in Shakespeare's Richard III. Maybe not now, Alison, but soon. I don't want you mocking, co-pilot. My, my designated <laughs> sh- shopping Sherpa, who is sent off... Himself. ...in his befuddled male manner. Him indoors. Him <laughs> indoors. Waitrose is out of pitta, he reports. Mark my words, Halligan, historians of the 22nd century are going to be saying, you know, the minute that Waitrose... Next it'll be the Tarama Salata. There'll be, there'll be no end to it, will there? Now, don't be ridiculous. Don't, that, that's alarmist. <laughs> that's irresponsible journalism. Waitrose will never, ever run out of Tarama Salata, OK? If Waitrose has run out of Tarama Salata, we've got much bigger problems to be thinking about, OK? We certainly have. But can I start the show by saying... Well done to you, co-pilot, for foreseeing the winter of discontent several weeks ago before anyone else. Now everyone is banding around that well-worn phrase. Liam, I've been doing quite a lot of swatting this week because this is very much on your terrain. So I'm going to bombard you with a blizzard of clueless questions later. But you know how I do. I think we do have all the ingredients for a perfect storm. So you've got energy firms supplying six million homes face collapse due to the rising gas prices. The government, meanwhile, is about to cut the £20 a week uptick in universal credit. So the poorest families in the country are going to be losing money at a time when energy prices are soaring, as will food prices. And a million people, Halligan, will be coming off furlough at the end of the month, possibly adding several hundred thousand to the dole queue. Now, we know, Liam, that middle class families can accommodate usually a rise in their heating bill, but energy prices loom very large for people on a low budget. I don't know if you saw it, there was a woman on the news saying she was already using the microwave to make family meals because using the cooker was too expensive. That, that I suggest, is the kind of story which is going to be causing an absolute headache for the government in the next couple of weeks. And all this, Liam, comes at a time when the government has, as Boris used to say in the good old days, been spaffing billions up the wall. They've just given an extra £36 billion to the NHS over three years. That's on top of a handout of £5.4 billion. So let's call that an extra £40 billion for the health service being paid for out of the taxes of millions of ordinary people who are just about to be shafted with higher gas bills. Oh, joy. And 
This co-pilot Halligan, this really does take the biscuit. Not only are we going to give you soaring fuel bills in the short term, but because, as Boris said, you've been very naughty children and caused climate change, we're going to make you install hydrogen boilers that you can't afford so the UK can reduce the 1% of carbon emissions it contributes to the world total, which won't make any difference because China and India, who make the most carbon emissions, are going to nod politely at Carrie Johnson's COP26 conference in Glasgow. And then they're going to go away and hold their own industrial revolutions anyway, while Britain impoverishes its own citizens in pursuit of some upper middle class eco dream. Did I leave anything out, Halligan? No, I think you've covered the waterfront there, <laughs> co-pilot. I do think this energy crisis, well, it's kind of crept up on most commentators, but, you know, the specialists have seen this coming for a long time. Wholesale gas prices globally have been soaring up 250% this year. Britain also has a real problem in that we don't really have that much gas storage capacity the main reserve at rough off the Yorkshire coast was closed by this Conservative government, not under Mr Johnson, but he will certainly reap the dividends or otherwise of that, given that we have so little gas storage in reserve. We've got less than five terawatt hours of gas reserves. In the Netherlands, they've got 60 or 70 terawatt hours. In France, it's over 100. In Germany, it's almost 150. And at the same time, our nuclear capacity, which typically provides around a fifth of our energy, a lot of our nuclear reactors are involved in what's called unplanned maintenance, i.e. they're clapped out and they're not working. And we're trying to get them going again. And we're not. And we haven't invested in that sector. Look at Hinkley Point, in Somerset. That's been delayed again and again and again. That won't come on stream till the mid-2020s, probably the late 2020s at the earliest. We've lost a lot of our domestic capability to build and maintain nuclear power, even though in the late 40s and early 50s, it was Britain which pioneered civilian nuclear power. We have made progress with renewables, but you know, renewables only work when the wind blows or the sun shines, for the most part. So I do think we have an energy crisis here. I don't think we're going to see that expressed in very, very high bills for the most part, because that energy price cap is there. It was introduced in 2019. So even though wholesale prices are increasing a lot and a lot of energy companies are going bust because they can't handle the high input costs, the high wholesale gas prices, given that they can't pass them on for the most part because of the price cap, there will be companies failing. The government will bail some of those companies out. It will be difficult to choose which ones it does bail out. But I do think we could see, there's no other way to say this, actual physical shortages. I think we're at that point, given how little gas we have in reserve, given that For many, many years, successive governments have put these long-term energy issues in the too difficult box. Well, you have explained that to me very well, as you always do. I was actually reading our venerable colleague, Ambrose Evans-Pritchard, this week, Liam, and he said that pretty much what you said, really, he said that wafer-thin gas reserves have left the British economy almost uniquely vulnerable to an extreme global supply squeeze, and we're dangerously reliant on cross-channel interconnectors in Europe. If Europe faces power blackouts and shortages, I'm not sure at the moment in our relationship with uh, Monsieur Macron, my former boyfriend, <laughs> that would be a very good idea. That, well. <laughs> that went well. I'm not sure that uh, Boris has told the French to prenez une grip today. I think it may be our own prime minister <laughs> who needs to prenez une grip. I think if France can bugger us about with withholding any power supplies and they're going to take great pleasure in doing it. But Kwasi Kwarteng's just said, Liam, that it would be a very difficult winter. Meanwhile, Boris in New York, full of his vim and vigour, was saying, crisis, what crisis? But can, can you just, I genuinely want to know this, Halligan, what is the Tory energy policy? 
because it seems to be completely contradictory here. I could be being thick, of course, but what is the Tory energy policy? It seems everyone's got to pay these huge energy bills to reduce CO2 emissions, while the Tories this week are using tens of millions of pounds of taxpayers' money to subsidise an American firm to produce CO2. I mean, are these things related? Are they blatantly contradictory? Well, I think the first thing to say, Boris almost did say crisis, what crisis, didn't he? In the throwback to that famous moment when sunny Jim Callaghan, he didn't actually use the phrase, though the Sun headline writers suggested that he did in the height of Britain's late 1970s dystopia ahead of the winter of discontent. And I do think that the Prime Minister hasn't fully grasped the extent of this energy crisis that I think stems largely from a storage issue, the lack of investment in storage and also the lack of investment partly in our nuclear programme, but also some other programmes. I think the Tory energy policy is to go green big time. It's all about, we are the Saudi Arabia of wind. It's all about green jobs. It's all about COP26 and pressing those right-on buttons, which appeal to lots of younger voters. But even the most ardent young environmentalists won't be impressed if they can't charge their smartphone because (laughs) electricity goes off overnight. That won't look too clever. So I think this is one of these long-term issues that politics is just not good at dealing with. And it's not just the Tories, it's the Labour Party as well when they were in power. This is one of those Cinderella political subjects until, um, you know, the ugly sister of reality turns up and biffs governments on the nose. I don't think a lot of these green policies are sustainable. I don't think it's going to be possible to just ban petrol and diesel cars, sales of new cars, fossil fuel driven in 2030. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be delayed and diluted. I don't think it's going to be possible in short order to require the whole of the country to install heat pumps rather than gas Boilers. I think a lot of this stuff is pie in the sky. I do think there are technological advances that will help improve the environment. I do think there's a lot to be said for pursuing renewable energy and using, to some extent, tax breaks rather than government subsidies, I would use tax breaks to encourage that to happen. We do need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels, but we can't do it solely, pretty much, at the expense of consumers and taxpayers in general, which is what we seem to be doing. And you mentioned the universal credit uplift of £20, Alice. And here's a prediction. I don't think it will be energy prices that will force the issue on that, because I think consumers, for the most part, will be insulated from those really big energy price rises because of the cap that I mentioned. But inflation in general means the cost of living is soaring. The CPI, Consumer Price Index, is going up at 3.2%. I frankly don't think that's remotely a representative number. I think the cost of living is going up far faster than that. And there are many, many more price rises locked into the supply chain. When you look at input prices of manufacturers and service sector companies, up 10% in July compared to July 2020, up 11% in August compared to August 2020. There are big cost of living rises coming down the track at us. And I reckon in the end, if you talk to even some pretty hardline, fiscally conservative Tory backbenchers, a lot of them are saying to me now, do we really need this 20 quid? You know, shouldn't we just let people keep the 20 quid in terms mm. of the cost of living rises that we're all seeing? It will be a gift to Labour. And I speak as somebody who's generally, as you know, pretty fiscally hawkish. Yeah, hardcore. Well, I wouldn't say hardcore. Tough but tender. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Naughty but nice. (laughs) It will be such a gift to Labour to not make good on this £20 uplift. I mean, if I was advising the Prime Minister now, I would say, you know, as Keir Starmer stands up, confirm it's staying at Labour conference, which, of course, 
starts this weekend. I completely agree with you. I think it's going to be a massive own goal. It's always much harder to take something away from people, isn't it, than to give it to them. And when he was in New York this week, I mean, Boris was saying in an interview, oh, but to keep the £20 uplift will cost between five and six billion a year and that would be dreadful and you were thinking yeah well that 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 used to be a lot of money Liam didn't it but <laughs> now now given the recent spending spree I mean five to six billion sounds pretty cheap to avoid an, a, a major political disaster I mean 20 quid you could buy the whole pub around <laughs> right back in the day now you don't get changed if you and I go for a glass of wine that's 20 quid yeah with the wine I put away but coming back to what you're saying about this well it's my Nora Batty phase but you know instead of calling them renewables I call them unreliables that's keep getting in my head we are we are it seems to me we're caught between you know the danger is we fall between these two stools of this marvelous green revolution which as you said isn't going to be happening anytime soon while the old things we rely on are just fading away and Boris has said that the the answer is is to build this marvelous high wage high skill economy great but you know what to what do we do in the meantime? It seems to me we're down to three bottles of butane gas for the barbecue. And the country is going to be you know, putting on three jumpers for the winter. I mean, to me, it looks like a huge... Put a hat on. Put a, put hat, a hat on. Put a hat on. Was that, was that Edwina Curry or was it Virginia Possibly back on the day? So what would you advise, Minister Pensioners, who are worried about putting the heating on? Put a hat on. Put a hat on. <laughs> Alison, we've talked about the winter discontent just in the last... Part of this conversation, I think we can't let this episode of Plant Normal pass without discussing your absolutely magnificent broadside against the British Medical Association. They are taking you on and you are fighting back with interest. You're basically saying to the GP's trade union, aren't you, in your column this week, come on then if you think you're hard enough. Very unwise to pick a fight with a Welsh pit pony, Halligan. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, there is mounting pressure on GPs to resume face-to-face appointments to get them up to the 80% that we were seeing before the pandemic. We're now down to 57%. We even saw the Prime Minister intervening this week with, you know, number 10 issuing a statement saying every patient had the right to a face-to-face appointment. We've been shouting about this on planet normal for many months haven't we Liam and we thought we'd got a bit of a u-turn when NHS England issued guidance saying GPs really should be seeing patients in person if they could possibly help it and they just haven't done it they're unbelievably arrogant and recalcitrant they're not responding to the clear anguish which we've talked about we we hear I mean I get emails every day Liam you can't even yeah. believe how awful they are you know yeah. my my goddaughter's just dropped dead of something that wasn't picked up. I've got one of those this morning. I get so upset about it. I'm and we're not making light of this. We're we're slightly joshing because it's really pulverising, isn't it, to oh. hear from our listeners a lot about the human fallout from the fact that GPs are not seeing people face to face at anything like the extent that they were pre-pandemic. And we are also hearing from listeners who live in Germany, who live in Spain, who live in Italy, that the doctors there never stopped, never stopped seeing patients in person. We've got an email later on about that, actually, which is very interesting. But what happened this week, Liam, which pushed the argument on a bit, was we had a report from University College London, which said that the pandemic is likely to have caused an extra 10,000 cancer deaths because of a lack of emergency referrals by GPs since the first lockdown. This negligence is likely to have resulted in 40,000 late diagnoses. But I actually approached Professor Gordon Wishart, who I hope will get onto the rocket soon, who's one of our leading cancer experts. And Professor Wishart told me that he thought that 10,000 excess cancer deaths was a very, very modest estimate. He thought it would be over 25,000 deaths over the next five years. Personally, I think it could be even more than that. And I featured in the column, Liam, What I do, I guess, in my journalism is I try to use human stories because they really, really cast light, don't they, on it? So there was I was talking this week about Jessica Brady. She died age 27 
absolutely tragic. Last summer, she had stomach pains. She couldn't get a doctor's appointment, of course. She was back and forth on the video call and on telephone calls. And, you know, they were giving her antibiotics, giving her this, saying she had a kidney infection, on and on and on until, you know, she was ringing the surgery so many times. And her mother, Andrea, gave testimony, very moving testimony to the House of Commons Health Committee just saying, you know, that nobody was doing the pieces of the jigsaw for Jess. No one was realising that she was deteriorating rapidly. And tragically, by the time she sought private medical help, she was absolutely riddled with cancer. And she died five months after she'd been first tried to see a GP and failed. And the thing that absolutely set me off co-pilot, I mean, I cannot believe this, this guy called Dr. Richard Roop, who is the clinical advisor for cancer at the Royal College of General Practitioners, he told MPs, listen to this, in general practice, we talk about learning events. And Jess's death is the mother of all learning events. I think the narrative we've heard is in a way a manifestation of essentially demand outstripping supply. Oh, mate, read the room. Read the room. Read the room. I mean, oh, I mean, it, no, what this is a story, this is demand outstripping supply. This is a, an increasingly desperate young woman, a 27-year-old York University graduate, trying to access the healthcare that her parents have paid all their adult lives for and not being able to get it and then dying because nobody would actually examine her. So I think you can tell why. I know we laugh a bit about my, you know, my monstrous crusade against the BMA. I just feel, who are these people? You know, why can't they feel things properly, Liam? Why don't they understand? This isn't just us. One doctor on social media said, oh, Alison Pearson and her hilarious anecdotes. So I think the stage is set for a big clash between these white collar medical unions and the government and the patients because I think patience is running out. Alison, as we always say on Planet Normal, we both know many, many, many NHS doctors who do a great job and there are many. We're not talking about all doctors. We're talking about some doctors and we are responding to experiences in our own lives and above all the experiences of the countless dozens hundreds of people who have emailed us at planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk and told us about their experiences. So there's nothing at all monstrous about your campaign. I would say your campaign to highlight this issue of some GPs not seeing their patients, a trend that is completely borne out by the numbers produced by the NHS itself, just 57% of GP appointments are currently face-to-face. It was 80 pre-pandemic, even though the government has told GPs to go back to normal. There's nothing monstrous about your campaign. It's a noble campaign. It's good journalism. As you say in your column, physicians, heal thyselves. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. And on to our Planet Normal guest. Richard Tice is a businessman and since March 2021, he's been leader of a political party called Reform UK. Richard was a founder and co-chairman of the pro-Bexit campaign groups Leave.eu and Leave Means Leave. He then helped found the Brexit Party, was elected as a member of the European Parliament for the East of England in 2019. And when the UK left the EU and our MEPs came home, 
Richard Tice set up Reform UK. A French speaker with huge business experience abroad, Tice is a fierce patriot who, while always remaining polite during TV debates, doesn't mince his words. And I started by asking Richard Tice what opportunity there was now in British politics for Reform UK. I think the opportunity is clear in that many people have lost confidence in what the Conservative Party stands for and want a party that believes we need to cut taxes for the lowest paid and the smallest businesses because that's the way you create higher growth and with higher growth you get higher wages and with higher wages you get more tax revenues to invest in much better public services. So we stand for cutting taxes but we also stand in public services for reform. You know, it does what it says on the tin, Liam, and reform means reform. There's no point pouring in 10 billion every year into the NHS if you're not going to reform it. It's just going to go into a huge hole of bureaucratic blob and, frankly, bad management. So we've got a very clear, simple vision for the health service, Liam, which is we want zero waiting lists. Zero waiting lists. Just imagine, why do we accept waiting lists? Why have we been brainwashed into accepting waiting lists in the UK when actually across much of Europe, the idea of waiting lists is complete anathema. Think of the joy that would give to so many patients in agony, suffering. So we think there's a huge opportunity there to reform the health service. And then the third big opportunity is coming up with a smart agenda for reducing emissions. So those are the three things, cutting taxes, zero waiting lists and a smart green agenda. How surprised are you, Richard, that a Conservative government is introducing tax measures that will take our tax take in this country, tax as a share of GDP, to a post-war high? I think people are astonished. And people realise now that they really cannot trust a single word that this government says. In so many different areas, whether it be vaccine passports, vaccinating children and tax rises, they say one thing and then actually do the direct opposite. And, you know, they promised in the manifesto they wouldn't increase a raft of taxes. And instead, totally unnecessarily, they've decided to impose essentially austerity mark two on the population, when actually what we need to do is we need to grow our way out of this crisis. And you don't grow your way out by raising taxes. You grow your way out by cutting taxes, putting your foot on the accelerator of growth. And I think... Most people who understand basic economics realise that that's the way forward. You know, I, I now actually call them, Liam, the con-socialists, because they're now the party of high tax and high regulation and nanny state. And look, if you want that, vote for a socialist. But I just don't believe that's the majority of people what they want in this country. Now, reform has laid out quite a comprehensive set of economic proposals. In particular, you want to raise the starting rate of income tax to take more people out of tax. How much appetite do you think there is around the country for the kind of policies that you're putting forward, Richard? Hopefully, as more and more people hear about us, hopefully the appetite will be clear. The fact that we're proposing to take 6 million people out of paying any income tax whatsoever with an income tax threshold of £20,000, which, remember, is still only two-thirds of the average national salary. You compare that to the Conservative plan, which is to bring another additional million people into paying income tax at the lowest level. And you think, hang on, folks. So you want to tax more people at the bottom end in order to relieve the tax burden on the wealthier, in order to pay for some of your policies that, frankly, don't make any economic sense. Now, the Tories have had a poll lead for a long time, but in some polls recently, they've lost that lead. But it hasn't been so much Labour gaining votes, has it? It's been smaller parties like your own nipping at the heels of the bigger parties, particularly the Conservatives, But in the end, I mean, how can you really influence outcomes, Richard? We had William Clouston on, who's the leader of the SDP, another person with a very well thought through policy platform. But it is hard, isn't it, for smaller parties like your own to break through? Yes, of course. No one's denying that it's hard, but it's a bit like you're winning the lottery 
you've got to buy a lottery ticket. And if you want to shape and influence the way this great nation of ours, that we all, you know, we all love and believe in, if we want it to be better run, better managed, better governed, then we've got to roll our sleeves up. We've got to get stuck in and we've got to say, actually, it's worth the hard work. It's worth the difficulties. It's worth the challenges and the grief because we can shape and influence. And I've no doubt about that. As we successfully shaped and influenced and changed the way the Conservative Party operated and was led, we, we essentially organised the, the changing of the Prime Minister in 2019 to ensure that Brexit happened. So I believe that the challenges that we face now, we can shape and influence the solutions. And as I say, I just think there's massive clear water between our plan to grow the economy faster by cutting taxes as opposed to the Conservative plan. And I'll give you a simple analogy. If we had grown our economy at the same rate as Australia in the last 15 years, our tax revenues every single year, Liam, would be... 150 billion more every year. That's another NHS. Imagine if I gave you, if I gave the nation another NHS tomorrow morning. I mean, that is the power of what growth does for higher tax revenues, more money to invest in better public services. So we've just got to keep banging the drum. And yes, it's hard work, but I've never been afraid of hard work. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to stand, give or take 600 candidates across the country at the next general election that we think is probably going to come in summer 23. And there will only be, Liam, there'll only be five parties that have that number of candidates. And what do you think is really holding back growth in the UK economy? I mean, ever since the global financial crisis in the late 2000s, the economy sort of scuttled along at sort of one, one and a half percent growth, as opposed to two, two and a half percent the decade before that and of course, since the pandemic, um, we haven't really got back into gear, have we? Growth seems to be spluttering in July. UK GDP expanded by the grand total of 0.1%, which basically meant it was flat. It's very simple, and the proof's in the pudding. Let's remember for the first four or five years of Cameron's government, you know, they had austerity and taxes were slowly rising. And regulation was slowly rising. And that literally acts like a stranglehold on growth. So that's the reason why it's so different. We've now got a forecast, a total of 35% of GDP is going to be taken in taxes. I go back to Australia, their total tax take is about 27, 28%. That's a huge difference. In America, the total tax take is in the mid 20s. These are really significant differences. And we can get back to those levels. It's worth remembering, between the two world wars, we had sovereign debt levels that was about 150% of GDP, some 50% higher than the current levels. So, you know, we can afford these debt levels with these very low interest rate payments. What I would do, Liam, economically, is I would put all of the current sovereign debt owned by the Bank of England. I'd make that into a like a wartime bond. Let's call it a corona bond. I'd make it on a 75-year term with a fixed interest of half of 1%. And that deals with all the concerns about interest rate and refinance risk. That means that actually we've got enough money to invest. And other incredible nations that invest in brilliant infrastructure and brilliant public services like Singapore, they've actually got debt levels higher than us, but they've got growth levels much higher than ours. And that's what we need to do. We didn't do Brexit, in my view, as someone who campaigned hard for Brexit. We didn't do that to be a highly taxed, highly regulated European social democracy. We did it to become a lowly taxed, smartly regulated, what I call um, Singapore off the coast of Europe. You did campaign hard for Brexit and we'll come on to that, Richard. What you're advocating here, Corona Bond, is the idea that the government would sell its huge outstanding debts to private investors, institutions. They'd get a low, moderate but steady return on that purchase of debt in order for the government to borrow anew and reinvest. Why do you think that isn't happening? More generally, do you see anyone around the Prime Minister who has a sort of proper expertise and serious interest in economics? Because I don't. Look, clearly, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, gets this. He understands it. But I'm afraid that he is a lone voice in a cabinet, frankly, where people are more interested in power than principle. 
more interested in position than values. And I think that fundamentally is where we're at. And you could say, look, that's that's always been the case in politics. I think we've got amongst the lowest quality cabinets that we've seen in our lifetime. And I think, I'm afraid, that is reflecting in the lack of debate about this. And in the nicest possible way, the Prime Minister, you know, he's a great salesman. You know, he, he likes the Grand Projet. He's a big spender. But he needs someone else to create the conditions for growth so that that money's available. And it's just, at the moment, Rishi hasn't got the strength of voice or the support behind him to put his foot down. And I think that's to the detriment of the country's prospects. I think you're right, Richard. I think Rishi's instincts are on the money, to coin a phrase. But I don't see anyone around the Prime Minister daily in his face within the number 10 policy-making circle, if you like, aside from the Treasury, who really is putting across this kind of pro-enterprise agenda that you're discussing. And that's odd for a Conservative Prime Minister to put himself in that situation. It's completely odd. And the reality is it's why I call them the con-socialists, because they genuinely are no longer standing up for what most Conservative voters believe is a fundamental principle of being a Conservative, that you want to have a smaller state, you want to cut taxes, you want to create higher growth, and that will lead to higher wages and better public services. All of that seems to have been completely lost, completely forgotten, completely ignored in individuals' pursuit of cabinet positions and probably got the eye on the next job after Boris. And it's really serious. I don't think we've got many years left because if you go down this route of high taxation, high regulation for much longer, you get to a tipping point where you've actually gone too far and you can't get it back. And I don't know exactly when that point is, but it's less than five years away We'll come on to Brexit in a moment, but just before we do, Richard, what's been your view of how the government in the round has handled this pandemic? What will future historians say when they look back on the last year and a half? I think we can all forgive this government for the early challenges and decisions they made. I think we all understand that. It was unprecedented. I realised very early, Liam, though, that this was a government, they kept using this phrase, we're making the right decisions at the right time based on the right science. And they've never really veered away from that. And they've never been prepared to admit that they've made some big mistakes. And I think really after about the first month to six weeks, I've become increasingly critical. History will show that the political choice of lockdowns The collateral damage of that in terms of non-COVID lives lost and the economic damage, history will show that that was disastrous. It was a catastrophic series of decisions. And the evidence is there all to see. Look at a country like Sweden. They didn't have these strict lockdowns. They haven't had the economic damage. They've had less COVID deaths per capita than we've had. And they haven't had the excess deaths of non-COVID deaths that we've had. There are states in America that also prove that evidence. I think that's what history will show is the political choice, and it was a political choice of lockdown, was the wrong choice. And that's the big lesson that needs to be learned. I think your judgment on this is similar to that of myself and co-pilot Pearson, isn't it, Richard? We all accepted the first lockdown with good grace. We all understood that nobody knew what this virus was, where it was coming from. But pretty soon after that, when it became clear that it really did massively disproportionately affect older people and we could bring it under control, and particularly since the vaccine, we think that lockdowns have been a kind of knee-jerk response rather than resulting from a genuine interrogation of all the balancing factors. And so I put it to you again, The Prime Minister on this subject seems to have surrounded himself only with the voices of certain scientists rather than getting a broader view, broader view from economists, psychologists, sociologists and all the rest of it, given how damaging lockdown itself has been on loss of life. Completely. And in a sense, there's no such thing as the science. Science is never settled. Scientists always keep learning. And in the nicest possible way, Scientists disagree in the same way 
that fine economists like yourself, Liam, you know, you agree to disagree with other economists. Obviously, you always think you're right. But that's the reality and what the prime minister should have done. He should have listened to a range of different scientific opinions, different advice. And then, yes, the politicians, you know, they have to make the ultimate judgment. It's crystal clear that they listen to one route of scientific advice that's turned out in many cases to be wrong. And then I think the one time that the politicians didn't agree with the science, the scientific advice they were getting with regard to vaccinating children under the age of 16, they then suddenly decided that the prime minister is a journalist, the health secretary a former banker, and the vaccine minister a former pollster. They all of a sudden know more than the scientists and they can ignore the the experts of the JCVI on vaccinating children. I think that's unforgivable. I think it's going to lead to uh, some real challenges for us all, actually. And I think it's incredibly divisive at a time when real leadership is actually about trying to bring the nation back together and to build the nation's confidence again, which has been shattered, to build our self-belief. And this is a moment for really strong, bold, unifying leadership. And I just don't see that, Liam. Already they're talking about further restrictions in the winter when actually we need to be saying, look, we've got a plan B. I wrote recently in The Telegraph, they printed my article saying that we need to rebuild the Nightingales now. We need to have a reserve force of medics. Let's call them the medical reserve, a bit like the TA of retired medics on standby so that if there is some form of epidemic, whether it's a COVID variant or whether it's a flu epidemic, that the NHS has got the capacity to cope whilst also being able to start trying to get on top of the massive waiting list that we all know about. So these are some big leadership decisions. Finally and briefly, Richard, you were at the forefront of the campaign for Brexit, helping to run Leave.eu, which worked alongside the official Vote Leave organisation during the referendum campaign. Are we making the most of Brexit? We've got the space and the platform to make the most of Brexit. But at the moment, no, I don't think we are. I think certain people are are doing their best. I think Liz Truss has started reasonably well negotiating some trade deals. But the simple answer to that question is no, we can be so much bolder, so much more ambitious. And that's about confidence. It's about bold leadership. And that's why I'm, you know, why I'm in politics, because I feel that we really can do so much better. But we've got to set our sights much higher. We've got to be much bolder, have a much greater vision much more ambitious. You know, we're an incredible nation, strong, proud nation. We've got to believe in ourselves and we've got to be properly led. Richard Tice, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. Thank you. Well, there you go, Alison. When the Tories lost their poll lead to Labour in the middle of this month, the data fine print on those polls showed that among Conservative voters who had withdrawn their support from the Tories, the people who voted for Boris in 2019, but now wouldn't vote for Boris, over 10% of them went to reform. So Richard Tice is in danger here of catching a wave. You know, I've got a lot of time for Richard Liam. I think he has this gut feeling for the concerns of Middle England. And of course, he's right, as we know from many of our emails, that voters are confused what this high-tax authoritarian Conservative Party stands for. And there are going to be a lot of politically homeless Tories come the election, whether it's going to be in um, summer of 2023. I've heard that they may even go as early as next year. And what we saw with Richard and Nigel Farage with the Brexit party was that it was a small party, but a small party that can take sufficient votes from the Tories in key constituencies can cause a lot of damage. He's like a kind of polite guerrilla warfare operative, isn't he, Richard Tice? He's, 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 he's very smooth and polished and he, he presents very well. I said at the introduction, I think it's worth saying again, when he finds himself on the panel at question time or something and, and his opponents are trying to take lumps out of him, he always remains polite. He doesn't lose his rag, as we say. And yet he's, I think, a lot more politically astute than some of his opponents think he is. Oh, you know, I've got a lot of time for smoothie chops, Halligan. I mean, I think <laughs> you hang out with me. Well, you and know. by the way, if you're Nora, if you're Nora <laughs> Batty, that makes me compo, or maybe it makes me 
Clegg or Foggy. I think I want to be Foggy, the sort of nice one with the barber jacket. Well, I think I think Richard Tice is a sort of Roger Moore of politics, and we could certainly do with a bit more Roger Moore in politics than some of them. Yeah, I mean, look what he was saying about the NHS. You know, that's what lots of Tory voters are saying. If we're going to have to cough up all these large amounts for the national health and social care levy, someone like Richard Tice is saying we're only going to do that if we reform the NHS. I think it's all to play for. I really do. And I've said to you before, my post bag is telling me there's a lot of discontent amongst Conservative voters. And it hasn't really, until very recently, that hasn't been showing. But boy, will it show, I think, when the time to go to the polls is there. If Boris is still doing his here-we-go-green agenda, plus their vast heating bills and food bills, and no one can sort of look at the government and think it's a Conservative government, I really think it's going to be a very interesting time politically. Before we go to emails, a couple of other things I wanted to mention that you wrote in this week's column. See, I'm bigging you up this week, co-pilot, because I feel for you, you're suffering there silently with your eating your hummus off. Crackers, my God, crackers. <laughs> oh, sacrilege, I know. sacrilege. I didn't mention that Waitrose didn't have any Doritos. I mean, it's World War Three, Halligan, trust me. This is not, you know, we can't, we can't just brush this under the carpet. There's no Doritos. Abject poverty, abject I wanted to mention George, our friend in the NHS, whose identity we don't and never will reveal. He or she feeds the podcast incredible data from the NHS frontline, data on Pacific localities, regions, parts of the health service, data that's often never published. But you and George have cooked up a new idea. We have, Liam, because just quickly, George sent us another Planet Normal, another bulletin this week saying that hospitalisations continue to fall at quite a rapid rate, which is interesting considering we were told there would be a surge when schools went back. So I think what we look to George for, Liam, is just the truth, isn't it? Because I'm pretty resigned to the fact that in the coming weeks and months, what's going to happen is we're going to have more shroud waving from the NHS, from the BBC, from SAGE, from all the people who are actually quite happy with the idea of a lockdown. I did a deal with George and I said, you know, for the price of a few pints bought for you by co-pilot Halligan, will you, if a listener is being looking at their regional news and it's saying our local hospital is overwhelmed, you can write to us, you can email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and tell us which hospital it is and George will swing into action and will check whether indeed that hospital is overwhelmed or whether it suits certain forces in you know, the NHS and the scientific community to keep scaring people. So I think we can use George to dispel anxiety, Liam, and uh, counteract the doom porn. Go on. Doom porn. <laughs> you even managed to get that into your copy in the Telegraph. You got the phrase doom porn into the paper that is... Yeah, the, the voice of Middle England. Standards <laughs> slipping, as they say. But even as I typed it, I could hear your marvellous resonant tones. <laughs> but I did have a bit of fun this week because I always think, of, you know, poor readers with all this, you know, cancer deaths and so on. So I had a bit of fun because there was a really funny survey, Liam, which was about how many of the population found that the worst things about school were PE lessons. And that was 64% of British adults said the thing that they hated. And it was so full of damn memory lane, you know, the ropes hanging from the gym ceiling, the the mortification of wearing, well, for girls, horrible navy surge knickers and being thrown into stone cold swimming pools. And I think I said I said in the column that the words pommel horse can can still at a distance of, you know, 40 years still kind of chill me to the bone. And what's been absolutely lovely, Liam, is these little topics, they always get people going. So I just got one, an email earlier and it just said, disinfectant pool at swimming the cold yellow water with old plasters floating in it (laughs) so if any planet normal listeners want to send us their gruesome PE memories you Halligan you were a bit of a jock weren't you so you don't have any of this horror of not being picked for netball well firstly in my day it was PT not PE (laughs) (laughs) now I mean I read your column as I do loyally and because it's the best thing in the paper at least (laughs) when I'm not in the paper and it did make me laugh but 
we have so much in common, but this we don't have in common because, you know, I was the bloke picking the teams, mate. Now, I loved PE lessons at school. I loved sport at school. Sport for me was an incredible form of self-expression and outlet. But I totally recognise the trends you're talking about. And I have the same, you know, you know when you, you read something and you can actually have your senses are heightened. You can actually smell things when you read. The yes, sort of olfactory yes. memory kicks into gear. And I could smell those dodgy Hessian mats. These days, kids have crash pads <laughs> if they're trying to do a sort of somersault. <laughs> we had a Hessian mat and half of it. The two of you trying to do the same thing. I remember the forward rolls, the backward rolls, sort of cartwheel where you twist at the end. PE for me was a release in school rather than a sort of ritualistic punishment. But it's a wonderful piece of writing, and I'm sure it made many, many people smile. Now, onto our listener emails a selection of the fantastic, funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you, and they do really inform Liam's and my thinking. I spoke it earlier, Liam, about emails this week which had strengthened my resolve to go on battering away at this issue of face-to-face appointments and here are two emails I got in the last few days. This is from Tuppence. My 58-year-old friend just diagnosed with stage 4 bowel cancer, diagnosed too late, given only months to live. It makes me want to scream and cry. And Sue said, After all this time, Alison and Liam, I still don't know a single person who's died of COVID. I have heard of a couple of elderly people living locally with serious underlying health problems who contracted COVID in hospital and subsequently died. On the other hand, I now personally know three people under 50 who have died of cancer because either their treatment was stopped or they were undiagnosed due to the NHS withdrawal of non-COVID services. I also lost a 51-year-old friend recently to a pulmonary embolism, having been left in the back of an ambulance for seven hours without hydration on a boiling hot summer's day. To say I have no faith in our sainted NHS is an understatement. Powerful emails there. This is from Annabelle. I'm turning to you, Planet Normal, as I'm unsure how to get the enormity of this problem into the public sphere. We run a private company manufacturing smoked salmon. We're a family-run business and have always been at the stretched end of coping, as have countless other small and medium-sized enterprises. We've been extremely lucky during lockdown. We remained open throughout and ran the company as normally as possible, not enforcing masks that we knew didn't work, and basically, we tried to be normal. At the beginning of the first lockdown, many of our EU workers went home and many of them have not returned. These are not new migrants, but most who have been in the UK for at least five years. I completely understand why the country voted Brexit. You only have to look at the shocking behaviour of all those in power in the EU to know that what we did was right. The downside is that we now have a massive labour shortage. It seems to be a common theme that, quote, these people are taking our jobs and getting paid low wages. I'm not sure where these figures are from, but I can assure people that this is definitely not the case. The situation is now desperate. We need at least 40 staff for the run-up to Christmas and we're already shorting our customers as we can't find the staff. We pay at least £11 per hour for unskilled work and this looks likely to rise as we need to compete with Amazon who are offering our staff a £1,000 signing-on bonus. I understand why they go, but the problem is that we're all sharing the same dwindling pool of staff. This is an issue across the board. It's desperate as many businesses, including ours, may be forced to close if we can't supply our supermarket customer base and make hardly any margin at all. We've sent emails to our MP, but they send placatory reports that show they've not the first clue about how a small business is run. Small businesses are the lifeblood of this country. Something needs to happen almost immediately. I really hope you can get this message out there. And I reiterate, it's not about wanting to overturn Brexit. We have to be able to have discussions on this, and I don't want this not to be discussed because of that. I've listened to Planet Normal since the first episode. You've kept me sane through the ever-darkening days of deceit and lies. Thank you both for all you've done. Many of us would have given up without you. Best wishes, Annabelle. That's a really important email, isn't it, Liam? Because Annabelle's expressing something that must be being experienced by 
absolutely enormous numbers of small businesses in this country. Exactly. There are, there are labour shortages right across the Western world, you know, across the EU itself, across America. This isn't only due to Brexit, but it is partly due to Brexit. And I think the government has to realise that it does need to smarten up, increase the pace of its visa system so those skilled workers and indeed unskilled workers who industry need can be made available. Also, I think a lot of the people who have got leave to remain, that's why Annabelle says they've stayed here for five years, will come back after the pandemic is over. After all, the wage differentials between Eastern Europe and the United Kingdom remain absolutely massive. And many, many, many tens of thousands of workers who aren't in the UK at the moment will, I believe, come back in order to take advantage of the differences in wages. This is from Catherine. It's a shocking disgrace. I moved to Germany a few years ago and I'm able to get a face-to-face GP appointment within a few minutes of calling. When I told my doctor in Germany what was happening in the UK, his jaw dropped. He said, how can a doctor diagnose anything reliably without seeing the patient in person? Doctors, dentists and hospitals remained open as normal in Germany throughout the pandemic, even bravely seeing me when I had COVID last year. NHS doctors are disgusting, greedy and selfish. I've lost all respect and trust in them. This is from Brian. My not so fond memories of PE were experienced at grammar school, boys only. At every session, both for PE and games, there were two lines of boys. The right-hand line was queuing to enter the changing rooms. The left-hand was for boys who were unable to participate due to either injury or illness. A sick note was required. The PE teacher would listen to your excuse, ignore it and bend you over and slap your back. This happened to one boy who had a broken arm in a sling, an injury that had occurred the previous week in the same gymnasium. However, there was a more pleasant experience when I moved to a mixed grammar school and for the local newspaper, we had to do star drops with the local beauty queen who was crowned Miss UK. Nobody complained about that. (laughs) Fantastic. Wendy says, Alison, I found your article on PE lessons hilarious and familiar. I can remember hockey lessons at my grammar school taken by our deputy head. I hated hockey. Two girls had their front teeth knocked out on separate occasions. My abiding memories of being freezing cold, dressed in a true text shirt. Oh, the word true text, Liam, my God. And short skirt. And our teacher saying, it's not cold, girls. She always wore a scarf and a fur coat. And this is from Alison. When I was 10, I had my first school swimming lesson. I was trying to pluck up the courage to jump in when the PE mistress pushed me into the pool, shouting, there's nothing to be frightened of. As I surfaced, gasping and spluttering and clung to the rail, she told me to stop being such a baby and pushed my head under again with her foot. It is still one of the great regrets of my life that I didn't pull her in after me. And to this day, I have never learned to swim. I know, my public school-educated husband, he who thinks Alison's voice is incomparably sexy. Well done, husband. Sure. <laughs> now I know why you're reading out this email. You think, now it comes clear. You just think I'm an irritating, chattering chipmunk, but some people think my voice is incomparably sexy. My husband suffered far worse. He tells me that on one occasion, he was a member of a victorious cricket team who on their return to school all got caned because they'd won by too small a margin. My God. <laughs> they all were supposed to try their hardest to win by all possible means without actually cheating. And then a and insouciant disdain for the actual result. Because that's the English way. That accounts for half the cabinet, the behaviour, doesn't it? Go on, you, you, fi- you, you finish off. You're, you've got the last one. Oh, I can do this bit because there's no references to your sultry tone. Okay? <laughs> if they were suspected of slacking, they got caned again. Or encourager les autres. Although he still watches cricket, he maintains that running around in circles in your underwear to win a silver-plated egg cup is the most pointless waste of time and energy to be found anywhere outside politics. Fantastic. And on that bombshell co-pilot, that's it for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week, it's your turn. I think email of the week should be Annabelle with her very stimulating email about the struggles of small business. I think that's exactly right. Good choice. 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. There's some suspiciously nice remarks there now, and not all of them can have been written by Halligan. Or even my copious cousin that you refer to. <laughs> the ragtaggle bunch from County. Where county are you from? County where? Come on. Meor. 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 Right, okay. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Just find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I will reply from 11am to noon. It is you, our wonderful Worldly Wise Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast. We, we genuinely do learn so much from you and love to be in touch. Exactly right. Do keep emailing us and as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view... Thanks to Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, our producers, and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe, in touch with each other and with us. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from incomparably sexy me and Liam Hannigan. 